So when I was in high school, I was a total slacker. I'm not sure how many of you guys were like this uh, when you were younger too, but I would take every opportunity I could possibly get to get out of doing actual work. You know, I'd take like two blocks of woodworking and two blocks of automotive technology because I knew that the teachers in these classes were easygoing and I knew that I wouldn't actually have to work that hard in them. But for some reason, and I can't exactly remember why, I decided that I was going to take History 12. And in this class, we learned about World War II. And I loved it. You know, I even started to think that this kind of history thing was actually worth learning about. And I began to do really well in the class. I really, really enjoyed it. I fell in love with history because of this class. And one of the perks of getting into history is that you get to watch all sorts of documentary films. So, you know, we'd watch films on the war, and there'd be all these maps and all sorts of other things in them, and it was great. You know, I loved it. But as we watched these films, I noticed that no matter which one we watched, we were guaranteed to get at least one scene showing the complete devastation and destruction of a town. You know, there'd be images of cathedrals on fire and they're burning and collapsing in on themselves. Images of bodies that are strewn around the streets, around the rubble of all the buildings. Images of these emaciated and, and starving people just kind of wandering around looking for food and that sort of thing. Just awful, awful images of destruction. And I think, I think, our text this morning kind of acts in a similar way to these documentary films. You know, the poet intentionally uses all sorts of vivid imagery to show the destruction and the devastation of Jerusalem. And he even uses things like color to, to literally colorize our understanding of what's happened to Jerusalem in this passage. You know, he wants us to see the destruction of the city in all its, its visceral realness. And he's trying to shock us with the craziness of what's going on in this text. And all of this means that as we hear this text read, it can kind of overwhelm us a little bit. You know, we can kind of disassociate ourselves from it. We're so unacquainted with, with anything like what we see in our text this morning that it can be hard for us to even take it seriously. You know, it can be hard for us to deal with it emotionally and intellectually. We struggle to make sense of a text that's so raw in its description of destruction. So what I want to do this morning is, is I want to walk through our text together and, and try to help us understand it a little bit better just by kind of looking at what we see in it. And I want to do this by looking at three things in particular. I want to look at a great reversal, a great lie, and a great hope. A great reversal, a great lie, and a great hope. And by looking at, at these three things, it, it's my hope that we'll see that ultimately God's great judgment is finished. If you leave here with anything on your mind, it, it should be this. 
God's great judgment is finished. So let's jump into our text this morning and look at, our, at the first thing that we see, a great reversal. If you look in your Bibles with me at verses 1 through 10, you'll notice that the poet uses all sorts of images to show us that a great reversal of fortunes has taken place amidst the people of Jerusalem. You know, things have gone from from bad to worse, so much so that it's almost like Jerusalem has been completely flipped upside down. So, for instance, we see that the precious sons of Zion are now treated as earthen pots, right? They're thrown down and shattered, just, just worthless. We see the wealthy who feasted on delicacies perish in the streets from starvation. We see the rich and the successful, those who were brought up in purple, the powerful embracing trash heaps, trying to find even just a little morsel of food. We see immaculately handsome princes, but now their faces are are blacker than soot, and their skin has completely shriveled on their bones. There's this great reversal from riches to rags, like from prosperity to scarcity, and it's shocking to us. Shocking. You know, we're used to reversal stories kind of going in the other direction, right? We're used to like a slumdog millionaire type, type thing where it goes from uh, rags to riches, but this goes from good to bad. And this reversal, it affects everyone in society. It doesn't just affect the wealthy and the respectable, but it affects even the little children. In our passage, we're given images of women who can't nurse their own infants. You know, we see a heart-wrenching picture, heart-wrenching, of infants that are so hungry that their tongues stick to the roof of their mouth for thirst. I mean, just to imagine this breaks my heart. You know, I have an infant at home, and, and hearing him cry is hard enough, but as a father, I can't even imagine the heartbreak, and the utter despair you must feel looking at your child who is too weak from hunger even to cry. It's just a horrendous thought. But even this isn't as horrendous as the last reversal we see in our text. The compassionate women, loving and caring mothers, boil their own children, and they became their food just so they could survive. I mean, the situation is bad enough that these women couldn't find meat for their kids. But think how bad things must have gotten in Jerusalem if they were forced to make meat of their kids. I mean, these verses, they're stark, you know, they're visceral, and they're just downright horrifying. And they show us that a great reversal has taken place in Jerusalem. You know, the high have been brought low. The strong have been made weak. The the caring have become calloused. It's Jerusalem, the great, the mighty, the wonderful Jerusalem is just utterly devastated, flipped completely upside down. Christopher Wright, who's an Old Testament scholar, says this in regards to these verses. The whole community, from top to bottom, 
from the elders to the infants, from the king in his palace to the mother in her kitchen, has been turned upside down and shaken out and left shattered and scattered like trash littering the streets. You see, these verses are meant to show us the depths to which Jerusalem has sunk. It's meant to show us how they've hit rock bottom and are at the worst of the worst of the worst. Jerusalem has experienced a great reversal. But why? Why has this reversal taken place? You know, what did they do to deserve this? Well, you know, we've seen already in previous weeks the extent of their individual sins. And we've even seen the the collective sinfulness of the people of Jerusalem. We've seen their idolatry. We've seen their abandonment of God. We've seen all that stuff. But today, the poet gives us a very specific instance of sin that has all contributed to the chaos and devastation that we see in our text. And I think this specific sin is a strong reminder and warning to us. So let's look together at the second thing that we notice in our text, a great lie, and see what they were doing. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. The poet points his finger at the prophets and priests and basically just calls out their sin as having a contributing factor behind the horrible destruction of Jerusalem. So what what were they doing? Well, look at verse 13 again because it tells us, this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. You see, these leaders of the nation, these prophets and priests, they were guilty of murder. They were killing the righteous. And based on other passages of Scripture, I think it would be fair to say that the people that they were killing were the faithful prophets of God. Now, a prophet in the Bible was meant to be someone who brought God's word to his people. So what these leaders were doing then was they were literally killing the messengers of God, these prophets and priests who should be seeking God and who should be bringing his word to the people are killing the people that are actually doing that. And we even get stories of this kind of thing happening in Jeremiah 26, for instance. Here, a prophet named Uriah is literally hunted down and then murdered like a dog and thrown in a common grave. Look at this story with me. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim, he prophesied against this city and against this land in words like those of Jeremiah. And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim who struck him down with the sword and dumped his body into the burial place of the common people. They murdered God's righteous prophet because he brought them God's word. 
But they didn't just kill God's righteous prophets. They also just persecuted them relentlessly. We see this in Jeremiah 20, 1 and 2. Uh, it says, Now Pasher, the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. I mean, this is some house of cards type stuff, guys. The prophets and the priests, the leaders of the nation, are doing everything they can to silence their political opponents. Now, if the prophets and the priests, the leaders of the people who were meant to uphold God's word, are killing and persecuting the righteous who are speaking God's word, then something must be wrong here. And the only explanation that makes sense is that it was politically expedient to deny God's word. People didn't want to hear God's word. And this is exactly what we see in Jeremiah 5, 30 through 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. The people loved to have it so. They loved to hear words based on lies and falsehood. They didn't want to hear God's word because, let's face it, being confronted with God's word doesn't always feel good. I mean, think about it for a second, okay? If you were in the shoes of an Israelite at this time, what would you rather hear? God's going to reject Jerusalem and destroy it, so you better repent, or everything is fine and dandy, so you have no need to worry at all. I mean, we all would rather hear the latter. We all want to hear the nice thing. We all want to hear and accept things that, that make us feel good and then reject the things that make us feel bad. This is just who we are as people. It's in our nature. But if we move in a direction where we're trying to decide what's true and what's right and what's good just because it, it feels good or it feels nice, we're, we're making a huge, huge mistake. Look what Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says. The heart is deceitful above all things. Our hearts lie. In other words, we can't trust our emotions or our feelings to, to tell us what is right and what's good for our lives. It lies to us and it leads us down a path that we don't want to go to. And the same thing is true for our minds. You know, our logic and our reason is just as inadequate at showing us what's ultimately good. Look at Romans 1.28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Apart from God, our minds are debased. Reason is incapable of teaching us ultimately what's right and wrong. Do you see what I'm saying here, Christ City? Because humans are sinful, because every area of our life has been touched by the mark of sin. Both the heart and the head 
are incapable of leading us into the ultimate truth. Both emotions and reason fail to give us a foundation upon which we can build our lives. And the sin of Jerusalem was believing this. They loved, loved the words of the prophets that, that felt good and made sense to them, but not the words of the prophets that were true. They rejected the true word of God spoken by God's prophets, and in doing this, they lost any foundation that they had to stand on. There was no more knowing what was right and what was wrong, no more knowing what was true and good. They lost it when they rejected God's word. You see, God's word is the only firm foundation for knowing truth that we can stand on. And they rejected it because they loved lies. And this should raise a question in our minds. What lies do we love? What lies do we believe about God or about the world without any biblical evidence because we love them? You know, what, what podcasts are we listening to on our commute to work which call itself Christian but then never talks about the Bible, never ever challenges you with God's Word? What sermons do you watch on YouTube that, that twist the meaning of the text just a, a little bit and promise you all sorts of wonderful things that make you feel good inside? What do you read in the Bible and say, that, that can't be what God means. That just can't be true. I can't believe it. So you reject it and you ignore it because, because you don't like it. What culturally have you accepted as true without weighing it against the counsel of Scripture? You know, is it the idea that you deserve to be happy all the time? Is it the idea that everything that exists exists for your own pleasure? Is it the idea that you get to define who you are? What lies do we love? I mean, I am as guilty as anyone when it comes to these things. I, I'm constantly believing lies about the world and constantly need to go back to God's word and repent. Look, don't be fooled by the world. Take every single thing you hear, every single thing you believe, everything you think to be true, and measure it through the lens of Scripture. Watch yourself. Watch your heart, watch your head, and test yourself before God's word because ultimately, at the end of the day, there's only two options. We can put our trust in God's word as a firm foundation for our life, or we can put our trust in something else that's ultimately going to fail us. The people of Jerusalem did the second, and they ended up believing a great lie. And look how it ended for them. You know, it led to destruction, devastation, rock bottom. I mean, the situation for Israel feels completely hopeless at this point. Everything has been destroyed. Everything, 
All hope is now lost because of their sin. But the poet is not hopeless, which is the final thing we notice in our text this morning, a great hope. Look with me at verse 22 of our passage. It says, The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. Now, at first glance, you know, this text may not seem that hopeful at all. But I want us to notice that word, accomplished. This single word brings hope. It's a word that suggests finality, that suggests it is finished which means that the punishment for their sin, Israel's sin, is done. God's wrath has been poured out upon them. They've hit rock bottom, and it's over. The people of Jerusalem can look forward now knowing that the only way from where they are now is up. God's judgment for their sin is complete. And now that it's complete, they can look back. They can look back to the promises of God, and they can trust in them. They would remember, for instance, God's word to them in Exodus 34, verse 6, where God passes by Moses and says to him, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, they would remember Psalm 89, for instance, which says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. So they can have hope. They can have hope that there's going to be restoration, hope that the city will be rebuilt, hope that they can begin the path upwards and out of rock bottom because God is faithful. Their hope rests on the reality that God's judgment is finished and that God is faithful. And do you know what? This is true for us too. Look with me at John 19, verse 30. It says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Just like the poet who says to Israel, it's done, it's finished, the punishment of God is complete. Jesus says on the cross, it's done, it's finished, the punishment of God is complete. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, he took upon himself the punishment for sin that we deserved. And when Jesus was on the cross, he willingly took the entirety of God's wrath for all the sin of all the people who would believe in him and endured it. And then as he died, he declared for all of us to hear, it is finished. So that we might know as believers in him that our sin has been dealt with. And this should give us a great hope. Because it means that if we believe in Jesus, we are no longer under God's judgment, but under his loving care. If we're under his loving care, 
then we can trust that He is faithful to fulfill all of His promises towards us. You know, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is Romans 8, 31-39, and it reads like this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we are in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing that we do Nothing in all of the world will change that one fact. He loves us. He cares for us. He nurtures us. And He's faithful to see our salvation to the very end. And all of this is because God's great judgment is finished in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that there's hope in the midst of lamentations. Lord, we know that all of our sin has been dealt with on the cross of Christ. And Lord, we look to him and we trust in him as the Savior of our life who died for our sakes. Lord, we love you, we cherish you, and we want to honor you with our lives. We come before you as sinful creatures made righteous by the blood of your Son, Jesus. And I pray that you would be with us now as we go into the world empowered by the Holy Spirit to share this good news, the good news of the gospel, with everyone around us. Father, would you encourage us this morning? would you build us up by your spirit? I pray all of these things in your holy name. Amen.